the sale decision is never an obvious, well, sell now, unless someone comes up to you and just gives you an obscene offer. It's always a nuanced decision about how much more return can I get over time versus what I have right now. This is Durable Value. Get investing and business insights from industry experts and successful entrepreneurs every week. Like and subscribe now. So today we're talking about a case study, Westlake Apartments, and um, what, how that ended up, the investment that it has, and both speaking to the dynamics of the property, the market, and then also, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. Yeah. And maybe if you could start by giving a little uh, background on the property. Sure. Well, Westlake Apartments, uh, 148 units in the pocket neighborhood of Sacramento. Uh, we bought it a little over a year ago at uh, $23,500,000, which is $158,000 a unit. And we are scheduled to close escrow on the sale in about a month at $38,050,000. So that's uh, $257,000 a unit. <laughs> that sounds, uh, sounds good. Let's talk about uh, today, like the setup for that, uh, the numbers we ran, our intuition on it, uh, the market, what went well, what's next, that sort of thing. So, okay. so the setup on it, uh, what started it out was we we had been active buying value add office buildings in Sacramento. We purchased one. We, we our first deal in Sacramento actually, sixteen fifty one response, and that broker. Uh, was working with a family that had an office building and a apartment complex coming to market. And there was quite a bit of uh, competition around apartments at that moment. And we we had done a fair number of apartments before, but we it wasn't a major focus for us at the time. Um, but at a, at a recent board meeting, we had been pushed to add more multifamily into the portfolio. And this, pro- this property came up and we looked at it seriously. And ultimately decided to purchase two assets at the same time, uh, 2101 Arena, a 80,000-square-foot uh, uh, state-occupied office building in that at the same time. And ultimately, we got sort of a, a, a bulk discount. <laughs> so we, we got both properties at slightly more favorable pricing than if we'd bought them, purchased them individually. And that worked out pretty great. Well, and I, I think what adds to this a little bit is kind of the relationships around how the deal came to be. I know originally that push toward let's figure out how we can do more multifamily uh, was a, was an impetus for us to start looking mm-hmm. or to, to add, I guess, emphasis to where we were looking. But if you could kind of talk a little bit about the timing and the relationship and how that happened, because it, it certainly wasn't, hey, there's a property on the market, let's put an offer in. This is Kind of almost years in the making. Yeah. but So virtually everything we buy is off market. Uh, that, works, that works well for our timing. We tend to get better deals that way. This came from one family that w- had reached a, a generational shift, and they were selling off uh, various, various assets. So we bought three of them ultimately. And uh, Ollie Nadimi with uh, Newmark Knight Frank uh, helped us with the first purchase. And... We, we kept sort of looking at other assets, and ultimately these two came up as a, as a pair. I think we paid $36 million for both. And at the time, that was a very uh, large purchase for us, and it was a very large sale for them. And it was, uh, it was dramatic. It was, a, it was a larger family, sort of 
struck me as a little bit more disorganized. They were very fixed on their particular contract. It was a little bit of a more of a, uh, there was hair on the deal, so to speak. You had to do deal with yeah. this contract. You had to deal with the family in this way. And um, we, you know, I knew it was a great deal. And we. Uh, yeah. And I remember we when you it. first brought it up um, in the Sacramento market, that property is a, a fairly desirable asset in the sense of its location and its amenities. Um, and that kind of brought a little bit of margin of safety as we're stepping into a large purchase for us. You know, what is that margin of safety that we have? Uh, so a little bit about the property. Uh, it's located in the Greenhaven or the Pocket neighborhood in Sacramento. This is a fairly isolated neighborhood because it has the river wrapping around three sides of the neighborhood. And because of that, it is a desirable neighborhood. Uh, I think the mayor lives in the neighborhood and it's about a 10 minute commute to downtown Sacramento. The property backs up to a lake, Greenhaven Lake. So it's pretty exceptional to be able to buy a lakefront property. Mm -hmm. And it was built in the 60s, but the property had been very well maintained. It hadn't been invested in, so the, the units weren't upgraded. Uh, there was still popcorn ceiling, things like that. But the like roofs that. were new. But the roofs were new. The grounds were nice. The grounds were well maintained. The owner uh, did everything to maintain the assets well. So we weren't going into a property where we expected to have a lot of deferred maintenance that we were going to have to deal with as well. Yeah. There was some controversy at the at the moment. Uh, we were at about a, I remember we were about 23% IRR, and then we got sort of whittled down on the price a little more. We ended up at maybe an 18 or 19% IRR, and we weren't sure about our exit price per unit. It seemed high. But at the end of the day, there's like a mix of where the math meets intuition. Like that, there's, there's a piece of magic in our business where the numbers, the numbers are what they are based on the competition in the market. And you have to look within yourself and within your firm and think about, are, are we the right group to execute on this? Does this fit our larger strategy? And do, you know, is there that spark of belief that this is the right thing to do? And I remember there was a sort of fierce conversation at that moment. We had uh, an analyst with us at that time that was uh, opposed and we looked at it as principles and, um, and had to make a call. And that's yeah. what, that's, that's why we're principals. <laughs> well, and, and it's uh, interesting because speaking of kind of the market dynamics too, you know, we went into this, we purchased this in um, the fall of 2020. Yeah. So at that point, and, and frankly, when we went into escrow and due diligence many months prior to that, it was at the really early stages of COVID and nobody really knew what the outcome of this pandemic was going to be and what the outcome would mean for that asset in that market. And I certainly, I think that helped contribute to our ability to acquire it at the price that we acquired it at. But we look back now and very shortly out of the gate, we were achieving rents that were our third year pro forma rents. Yeah. And what happened in the meantime, and I think this is important to, to speak to, is is the market was a huge tailwind to our success. Um, that's not to say that you know the market created this success because at the end of the day, you have to buy right and execute right. But the the market was definitely a favorable wind huge. Uh, for for that asset. So we we're exiting now at you know thirty eight million and change 
on a cost basis of about 26 million. And, you know, had the market not been on our side, maybe that would be 32 million or something like that. But the, the, the market certainly played a, a factor in the outcome that we received. I think if it had been on market and maybe not in that moment in COVID, it would have sold for 25 or 26 million and we would have passed. It wouldn't have hit our IRR threshold. We would have thought it was too rich. Um, of course, it still would have been a great deal. Of course, yeah. right at that moment, yeah. you should have bought every apartment in building yeah. <laughs> in the country, like all of them, all at once. But, in uh, secondary markets. <laughs> but but nobody... Uh, nobody yeah, hindsight. Knew, so. <laughs> Do you want to speak a little bit about execution and uh, how we executed the value-add strategy and what we, what we plan to do? Sure. So uh, we planned it. We planned to renovate uh, about 70% of the units because very few of them were renovated. Virtually none of them were renovated. Uh, in reality, we renovated about 35 of the units. We, uh, if I have to look at a part we didn't do well, we didn't renovate quickly. We, uh, we didn't have the, uh, the, frankly, we didn't have the competency in our firm to execute uh, quickly and at speed, and we should have been faster. What we got done in six or eight months, I, I had originally thought we'd do in three or four months. And maybe that's normal. Maybe that's due to COVID, whatever. Um, as a firm, since then and currently, we are doing a bunch of things to make sure that uh, as soon as we close, renovation starts at speed. And um, you know, the market was on our side. That was yeah. great. It sort of helped us. But um, if I have to look at something we could have done better it's renovate faster and with more precision and yeah yeah and i would describe this as kind of maybe a little bit between a heavy lift and a light lift in the sense that we went in uh budgeting about fifteen thousand a unit or is that right budgeting eighteen thousand we ended up spending about twenty one thousand per unit yeah so uh going in we knew that we were going to be scraping popcorn ceilings we were going to be doing New flooring, new carpet, new cabinet, or refinishing the cabinetry, new countertops, new appliances. And, um, you know, that certainly added to the delta in rent that we received as, as those units turned. Well, the neighborhood warranted it. There's other complexes in other neighborhoods where we're not scraping popcorn ceilings now. But um, yeah. at the time, we made the call, and I agree with it, that this was a Class A neighborhood, and it was on a lake, and yeah, it, it was worth it, and it proved to be so. What about uh, exterior improvements or common area upgrades? Yeah. Um, so most of it was landscaping. Uh, we spent about half a million dollars in landscaping, and it looks incredible now, but that's a lot of uh, new plants and bark and uh, humus and <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Uh, we certainly uh, improved the pool area. That was mostly cosmetic, new furniture, um, new paint. Uh, we redid the clubhouse dramatically it looks amazing we repainted the whole complex but, barbecue areas too i remember yep two uh, barbecue lakes, areas lakes on the barbecue lake. areas. Um, and new signage because the the signage was from 1960s yeah <laughs> so maybe let's talk a little bit about uh, you know where we are today and and also well why sell the, why, yeah well, why why sell <laughs> yeah let me ask you that uh, i mean that was... yeah well that that's an interesting one because the the sale decision is never an obvious, well, sell now, unless someone comes up to you and just gives you an obscene offer. It's always a nuanced decision about how much more return can I get over time 
versus what I have right now. Yeah. And I think for us, we were on the fence a little bit because we've owned it now for 15 months. I mean, yeah. There's no question, and we've turned about uh, 40 of the 148 units. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly plenty of upside. What informed our decision-making is, is a few things. Number one is um, the market dynamics, and I'll yeah. speak to that a little bit. But then the second thing that I would say is we put out trial balloons on where we thought we could sell, and they ended up substantially higher than our expectations. And those trial balloons are kind of that what what tell you you know how strong this market really is. Mm -hmm. We you know to be frank, we never anticipated that this property would sell for thirty eight million right now. But this is the the fundamentals of this market. When we uh, took the property to market, we received fifty signed confidentiality 70. agreements. Seventy. Seventy. And I believe over fifteen offers. Is that correct? Thereabouts, yeah. So just an incredibly competitive, frothy market. And I think that speaks a little bit to how the market has moved since we bought that property. Number one, huge additional emphasis on markets like ours. Secondary markets where outside of the Bay Area, people are moving to a more affordable place to live. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the capital environment that we're in. Uh, you know, we see a tremendous amount of capital chasing very few opportunities. And we were bringing to market an opportunity that still had, you know, meat on the bone, so to speak. And that brought a lot of interest because people are looking for any way that they can to have additional return. So we bought it at a high four cap, which seemed crazy at the time. We're selling it in the mid two caps. Yeah. But yeah. that speaks to the value add still to, still to happen. We we when we bought it, the average rent was six uh, twelve hundred dollars a month. Currently, it's uh, about eighteen fifty. So we proved out yeah six hundred dollars in in rent yeah. growth, uh, and now we've handed off this business plan to the next person who's going to be able to just harvest this business plan. But they're at a two and a half cap. We're getting paid. We're, we're splitting the deal, so to speak. They get the upside. They're yeah. still paying us a premium yeah. for what we proved out. Well, and and to speak a little more about why sell now. Obviously, I would if we step back, where our uh, gross IRR is like ninety one percent, our gross equity multiples two point oh one. So we've essentially doubled money over that period of time. So that speaks to itself. But the other thing that I'd say is we look back and we our job is to create a exceptional returning portfolio, right? Right. It's, not just one property, not just two properties, but the portfolio. And, and as we look at that, we have uh, assets that have longer time horizons. We have assets that have shorter time horizons. And to be able to take an early win in the portfolio now, as we continue to work the business plans on the rest of the properties, it's kind of a, you know, the adage, take money off the table. We've, we've seen a tremendous increase in value. Let's take some of that money off of the table as we continue to work the rest of the portfolio, including one property that has a you know seven-year time horizon from now. Mm -hmm. So, let's talk about what's next. Uh, since the purchase of, the, of that, we've purchased uh, about five hundred more uh, multifamily units, and we're in escrow currently on another two hundred or so, and kicking tires on another two, three, four hundred units uh, that. I hope we'll go into escrow. So 
Um, what does that look like? You said you said kicking tires and uh, uh, putting offers. What, yeah, put, putting like? offers. So um, uh, we have offers in in in, uh, in a large complex on the East Bay, um, one in Manteca, one in Turlock, and one in Modesto. So um, I'm I'm oh and we're in escrow that... in uh, on in uh, on forty units more in uh, Sacramento. I'm curious what that the the process of finding these properties. Obviously, we we were the beneficiary of a very hot market as a seller. Yeah, where we had uh, you know 15 offers and 50 interested parties. What does that look like now that we're you know being in the buyer position? Right. So the market's so hot right now that on market. So we recently competed and didn't win in Madeira for 109 units. Um, but the market's so hot that you cannot uh, buy something these days and have a due diligence period. Like you have to waive due diligence at at offer acceptance. That's that's like that's that's about par these days. Yeah. Um, and we got beaten Madeira because multiple groups were willing to waive due diligence uh, at signing of contract. Um, so that that's the environment we live in. That's not an environment we're quite comfortable with yet. And uh, so most again, most everything we buy is off market. Uh, we tend to work with uh, sellers and brokers that we've done multiple deals with. There are a portion of sellers that are happy to do off-market deals uh, for various reasons, and it's their style, or they don't want to go through an on-market process. Or, well, and a lot of times, what we've seen, uh, like with this property and others, is the market has moved so much, the sellers aren't particularly, "Hey, I'm in the mood to sell," but the broker, the relationships that we have, they may know. Hey, this is a seller that might sell. Yeah. And then we do our underwriting and because the market has moved so much, we're comfortable with a price that the seller receives and says, I can't believe the property is worth that much, you know? And and there is a shock value there because of how much the the rents have grown and how much the market has moved. But it's our job to see the next few years because people have been saying what you just said for the mm-hmm. last 5 years. Yep. In 2017, people said, I can't believe rents have gone up this much. 2018, yeah. I can't believe prices you know, yeah. 2019, 2020, 2021. Yeah. Uh, well, guess what? Uh, I believe, and it's yeah. for debate. We, we we talk about it, but I think 2022 and 2023 are going to con- continue to see rent growth. And uh, it probably won't be as dramatic as we've seen the last year. But uh, for the most part, what we do is we, we cure the loss to lease and improve the assets from groups that haven't been aggressive enough. Uh, we're not riding the top of the market. We're not saying, hey, this thing's already at par and par is moving here. We're saying, oh, we do think PAR is moving from here to here. But meanwhile, as we buy this asset, rents are here. We're going to get them to PAR and meanwhile, take them to here also. But yeah, um, no, and I think that's a a big part of how we underwrite things, because even though we're seeing 20 percent rent growth, you know, year over year, in some cases, we're still underwriting future rent growth at a more conservative three to five percent the biggest value add that we're doing is that loss to lease is current market rents are here and our current property rents are here. Yeah. And our job is to bring those property rents to market, not to rely on some sort of future rent growth. And obviously there's a, a modest factor in there, but that's not the reliance of our business plan. Yeah. But we're still excited about apartments, certainly excited about the apartments. What's great about them is that they're, very dynamic. You have hundreds of leases, not one or two or three. 
uh, like you might see in an office building or an industrial building. Yeah. And each one of those rollovers is a major event that requires great effort and strategy. Uh, with, with multifamily, it's the markets here. Current rents in the, in the complex are here. We're going to go on this plan to get to here, and we can run that with our team at scale and with precision, and that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So what's next? I, I think these next couple of years, we'll uh, continue to invest in multifamily uh, in addition to the other asset classes, but uh, with an, everything we buy tends to be with an eye for the exits within two or three years. We seek to move in quickly, add value, uh, make our mark, and, and move on. Let's talk a little bit about what's interesting in multifamily in our market in particular, because I do think it's generally recognized that multifamily is a strong asset class. There are some market fundamentals across the country that make multifamily compelling, particularly in secondary and tertiary markets. But just kind of zeroing in on our market, the Central Valley market, it was probably one of the biggest beneficiaries of COVID-induced changes in preferences mm -hmm. because you have people that moved away from urban markets and our area tended to be one of the first areas that they would move to. And the reason is if you feel like you still need to be back in the office some amount of time, you're not going to move to Boise, Idaho. Uh, the Central Valley is immediately adjacent to the Bay Area. And so we saw a tremendous amount of people moving where they could buy a home, where they could have their kids in a school district where they could have a quality of life that they wanted. And that put pent up demand onto the multifamily market as well, because when you have new entrants into the market, you end up having more demand for all housing types. Yeah. And then I'd say to speak to the supply side, our market, the, the rental rates had been climbing pre COVID. Yeah. But the construction costs had also been climbing uh, obviously, we, we, there were uh, demands on construction materials as other parts of the state had fires. Our area doesn't uh, have that issue. And so construction costs kept going up while rental rates were going up. And we only maybe a, a year or two prior to COVID did we start to get to a point where it made sense to add new inventory to the market. Yeah. Then COVID hit, the supply issues that we've had, construction costs have gone up further. And we really haven't had a new amount of supply added to the market. Mm -hmm. So that just amplifies the issue. Yeah. I like to think of it like a COVID, you know, like a dust cloud of sorts. So during COVID, the rules changed, like work changed, family life changed, feelings about whatever changed, America, the world, whatever changed. It all just got sort of thrown into the air and it's seeking and it sought and continues to seek a new equilibrium, It, it how everything would play out. And some of those things are, uh, you know, three days of work and, and two days from work from home, which we're seeing more commonly. Uh, some of that was uh, millennials wanting to leave primary markets where, so they could do family formation, uh, purchase houses, uh, maybe do something more like how they were growing up. And I think our area in that supply demand dust cloud uh, was a winner. Uh, a secondary market around the Bay Area, uh, one of the largest and most important markets in the world, people moved and a lot of them moved our direction. So um, that, that pushed apartments, that pushed, uh, that pushed housing. I think we were a, a beneficiary of that. And I think that's still, that's still playing out. Yeah. And I think something that a lot of people don't know is that more people migrated within California than out of California. Yeah. 
it's a kind of a common belief that people are moving out of California and people have moved out of California from the primary markets within California, but more people decided to make the secondary markets of California home than decided to move to Austin, Texas or Salt Lake City. So we don't see, and and that trend is sticky because these are people making very existential decisions about what's important for them and their life and their family and that sort of thing. So we don't see that train that trend uh, shifting. Yeah. Goldman Sachs had a headline, or there's a headline about Goldman Sachs two weeks ago that said they expect home prices to rise another 16% this coming year. I mean, that, that's amazing. And that's, uh, or it's, it's yeah. hard to believe that demand is <laughs> going to keep growing that much. So there's like a ripple effect from COVID in that uh, some people moved to one place, which raised prices, which caused other people to move who were there before to move to other places. Yeah. There's just a whole bunch of disruption and chaos in, in all of that. But um, yeah, and, and that to the opportunity. So. And to the extent that we can continue to see where those trends are going, I, I think we're you know, well served going forward. Thank you for listening to Durable Value, an investor's podcast, where we demystify commercial real estate with safe, sound investment strategies to help you balance your portfolio. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, visit grisadapartners.com, where you'll find more information, investors' tools, case studies, and more. This podcast is hosted by Joe Miratori and Ryan Suela. It's produced, edited, and mixed by Melodic, with intro music by Ian Post. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.